Right, Genesis chapter 1, the first 13 verses. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind, after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seeds after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the third day. And this is the reading of God's word, and all his people say, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your word unto us, that we would appreciate who Christ is and what his plan is for us and himself. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, I don't know how to begin Genesis because there is so much in it. I find it very difficult to try to bring things together. The imagery of the glory of God um, as seen by Ezekiel um, comes to mind where you have wheels turning within themselves and folding within themselves. And this is what I see in the book of Genesis. If I were, for example, to hold a seed in front of you, um, you would think to yourself, well, that's not very much to look upon, but contained within that seed would be an entire oak tree, which would generate a multitude of seeds, which would then fall to the ground and bring forth an entire forest, which people would then take and build into various things. And so it is with the book of Genesis. In seed form here, we have everything that is contained in the Bible is here in Genesis. The entire plan that God has for man is contained in Genesis. Everything that can be found anywhere else in the Bible is in the book of Genesis. Every doctrine, every truth, um, the law is in here, uh, grace is in here, glory is in here. Everything that can be found anywhere in the Bible can be found in here. And I'll speak a little about that um, as we continue. Um, I had covered the book of John, the Gospel of John, um, most recently because I wanted the... Um, the sovereignty of God to be set before us very clearly. I wanted the fact that Jesus is God to be set before us very clearly. And it, of the four Gospels and of any, basically any place in the New Testament, Jesus, who is God, is set forth the clearest there. I wanted us to see that. In the Gospel of John, for example, it opens up speaking of uh, Jesus uh, being God. And so in John chapter 1, and I'll read some of the verses there, um, says, in the beginning 
was the Word. This is how the Genesis is going to open up. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Speaking very clearly about who Jesus is. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Hold on to that truth, the relationship between light and life. Verse 5, and the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 is right there. And there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness as to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That's what Christians do. We're pointing to Christ who is the light. And so in verse 9, that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. The light shined in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. That's Genesis chapter 1, the first three verses there. Um, in, John, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, the Lord tells us about God, and that he says that um, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. James chapter 1, verse 17 tells us that every good gift cometh from above, comes from the Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow of turning. So this relationship between light and life comes right from Genesis chapter 1, and it is scattered throughout the entire Bible. In James 1, 18, it says, Of his own will, he, with the word of truth, oh, with, of his own will, begat he us with the word of truth, truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So a pattern is set forth in the book of Genesis, where first you have light, then you have life, then you have fruit. And that is exactly what is laid out for us here in James chapter 1, where he speaks of light comes from above, and that he begot us with a word, life in us, and then we would bear fruit. So that pattern is set forth in Genesis chapter 1. So Genesis has so many of these very interesting spiritual truths that I want us to just step back from the world, step back from Scripture, and take a look at the big picture. We know that God works all things out after the counsel of his own will. We read about that in Romans eight twenty-eight. All things work together all things working together, not just one thing over there, one thing over there, these isolated incidents, but every single thing that takes place on this planet is working together for the good of them that love God to them who are called according to his purpose. It's working for the good of the church. It's working for the good of the saints. God works everything out after the counsel of his own will. He doesn't take any counsel from men. Nobody provided any input to him about how things should be done but he does everything according to the counsel of his own will. And Genesis chapter 1 closes out with this statement, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. When God is done creating everything, he declares that it is very good. So here we are. We're living in a world that is a mess and California in particular is a mess, and even the, um, the non-elect can appreciate that because they are voting with their feet. People are leaving the state in droves because of the political climate is just awful.
Scripture says, when the wicked rule, the people mourn. And there's a lot of mourning people in California, and they are leaving the state because of um, the political climate and the awful things that our um, leadership is doing. Um, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, he makes reference to this world as <coughs> Babylon. And I think we can appreciate that that is where we are living. We are living in Babylon. So he says there, in a very nice way, if I can, if I can use that language, um, I can turn the Bible there. 1 Peter chapter 3, chapter 5, verse 13. He says, The church that is at Babylon, elect together with you, saluteth you. And so people think there's all sorts of coded language in that, that it has to do with Rome. But I'm here to tell you, this world is Babylon, and when we get into the book of Genesis, we'll see the beginning of the Babylonian um, governmental system, the Babylonian rule that begins in Genesis, and we live in it today. So people are leaving this state, they're leaving Babylon, uh, this Babylon, and going to another Babylon. They're voting with their feet, and yet... It is the saints who bring light to this world. It is the saints who bring whatever knowledge of God that might be known through revelatory means are brought by these saints. The saints are the light in this dark world. And again, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 16, it speaks about how God has left a, a light at night, um, the lesser light of the two lights, to rule the night and what is the lesser light in the night? Why, it's the moon. So the moon is representative of what? It's representative of the church. The moon doesn't generate any light of its own, does it? It's reflected light. It's light that's reflected from the sun, which represents uh, Christ. What does the moon do throughout the course of a month? It waxes and wanes, and that is um, indicative of how our faith waxes and wanes if we take our eyes off of Christ and let the foolishness of this world come between us, the moon, and Christ the Son. So God has set up all of these wonderful things in Genesis and the way the world is articulated to glorify himself that we would appreciate um, what he's doing for us, his glory, and um, what we can expect for, um, for ourselves with life on this earth. So as the moon waxes and wanes, because we let the world come between us and Christ, so too does our faith wax and wane in that regard. But God is ever faithful. His light is ever burning. <laughs> And if we keep our eyes on it, why the, the, uh, the uh, light of Christ ought to be seen in us. So my desire through this teaching is that we would always keep our eyes on Christ and have the big picture in view. So set before us here, the Lord teaches us in, uh, in a historical context. He teaches us in an allegorical context. And he teaches us in a spiritual context all of these historical truths about the earth, about the, um, how things were done, what happened when, and, and he'll tell us why it happened. And then we also have the allegorical truths in terms of what does this mean for your life? Um, why do men behave the way that they behave? And then there are spiritual truths that are in here too, in so much as the gospel is contained um, in Genesis chapter 1. And so when we consider the things that are in here, we read, I've read from Job chapter 38, Question, who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of these, and answerest thou me. So gird up now thy loins like a man. Pay attention to what the Lord is teaching us here, that he created things in six days just like he said he did, and I don't care what science says or what we think science says, 
God's word is truth, and if you pay attention to what the Bible says and have an appreciation for true science, real science, you will understand that what the Bible says is true historically. Now, with respect to the creation, we have in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, where he says, through faith, we understand that the world's were framed by the word of God. In other words, God spoke it into existence. The worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. So what is he saying here? Ex nihilo, creation. The ex nihilo is a Latin word which means out of nothing. This is not telling you to check your brains at the door like, okay, I'm just going to believe it because, um, because it's, it's black ink on white paper. No, we understand the truth, the veracity of the truth, because God has placed that truth in our hearts. And he's telling us here that he created things ex nihilo, that we should um, uh, understand that and that we should appreciate that. Now, I say understand that because he sets that truth forth in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, we get a picture of the world in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. What you see out the window ought to match what you read in the Bible. Surely we can see the wrath of God revealed from heaven. The people in Florida saw it last week, if not, maybe it was the week before you can see the wrath of God revealed from heaven. You can see all of the chaos and mayhem that happens in this world. And if you understand the sovereignty and power of God, you know that he's, he's behind it. Now, in verse 19, it says, Because that which may be known, things about God may be known. He's told us that. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him, that would be God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God is telling everyone everywhere that if you claim to be an atheist, you are a liar. You are lying to yourself and you're lying to other people because God has said, you have no excuse. I have showed to you my eternal power and Godhead through the creation. The fact that you are walking on a, on a planet tells you that I exist and that I have certain powers. Nobody walks into a building and doesn't appreciate the architect, the engineer, the carpenters, the painters, the plumbers, the electrician. Everybody understands that. So too, when you're walking down Yosemite Valley and you're looking up at El Capitan or Half Dome or the glorious um, of the physical creation, you know and understand that God created those things. As a matter of fact, he even tells us that in Psalm 19. In Psalm 19, he says, in verses 1 through 3, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. God has set these things right in front of everybody's face. You can look up every night. See the moon traverse its course. You can see the stars during the day. You see the sun traverse its course. And these things declare the glory of God everywhere on the planet. And so as it says in Romans chapter 1, man is absolutely without excuse. 
There is no reason for man to not understand that one, God exists, and two, his eternal power and Godhead. Now, again, in Hebrews 11, God says he created things ex nihilo, out of nothing. The things that were, pure, uh, were made were not made of things that do appear. He didn't take dirt from one planet and build another planet with it. He spoke everything into existence out of nothing. In Job chapter 38, he asked the question, this was in verse 31 that I read earlier, canst thou bind the sweet influence of Pallades or loose the bands of Origen? There are four star systems that are visible to the naked eye. Two of these, two of four of them, I should say there are many star systems that are visible, but four of them are gravitationally bound. He names two of them here in the scripture. Palladius and Origen are gravitationally bound, and he's telling us that in the scriptures. Obviously, man didn't figure that out or understand that until recently, thousands of years after that was written. Everything the Bible says about science is absolutely true. If men don't understand it or don't agree with it, it means that men are wrong. So the Bible affirms good science. The Bible is written by God. It does not change Scripture tells us, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Man changes, his theory about the creative event changes, but God's word never changes. God tells us here exactly how he formed everything. Insomuch as his word never changes, just like man, God has a copyright on his Bible. In the book of Deuteronomy, near the beginning of the Bible, uh, he tells us about that copyright. In chapter 4, verse 2, he says, Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it. Man is not to change God's word. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 18 and 19, as the last book in the Bible, the last um, chapter of the last book of the Bible, the copyright is there again. In verse 18 and verse 19, he says, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of my prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. God has the first copyright, and the penalty for violating God's copyright is death. Now, it's interesting to note with when you look at our copyright laws, if you were to write something, how long would that copyright be valid for? It would be valid for as long as you're alive plus 70 years. So God is still alive. His copyright is still in effect. Uh, plus 70 years after his uh, eternal life, and his life has no end, of course. So it doesn't change. Whatever the world thinks about creation and about man is foolishness. God's word is truth. And so again, we appreciate that the Bible was written to believers. It was not written to people that do not um, have the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is the interpreter. And if you do not have the Holy Ghost, you cannot understand it. And the Lord tells us that in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually 
discern. And so here we are, we, we go out in the world and we tell people about the gospel, we tell people about Christ, we tell people about some of the historical truths, you know, that there was a flood, and they look at you like you're nuts. When you tell them that the worlds and things came into existence because God spoke them into existence in six literal days, they look at you like you are nuts. And because they are natural men, they don't understand these things. But we have to remember that that's where we started. We once started as a, quote, natural man. We once started in the flesh before God indwelled us and made us into a spiritual man. And that is the pattern we are going to see going through the book of Genesis. The pattern of the flesh comes first and then the spirit. In 1 Corinthians 15, 46, the Lord says, That was not first, which is spiritual, but that which is natural afterward, that which is spiritual. So first comes the natural man, then comes the spiritual man, and we're going to see that in the book of Genesis. Cain is the elder of the two. First comes Cain, the natural man, the flesh, then comes Abel, the spiritual man. Uh, Tamer has two children, and the birth is rather interesting because one child sticks his hand out forth first and has a scarlet thread wrapped around it so they can identify who would be the elder of the two. The arm goes back in, and then the other child comes out. So you have Zerah and Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the uh, spiritual one, Zerah being the natural one. Then you have Jacob and Esau. Esau is the flesh, and Jacob is the spirit. First is the natural man, then the spiritual man. And this all leads us to, first comes Adam, then comes Christ. First comes the natural, and then comes the spiritual. In the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 11, what is the first thing to come forth out of the ground? It is grass. Grass comes forth in Genesis chapter 1, verse 11. That comes forth first. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24, the Lord says, All flesh is as grass. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. So first comes the natural then comes the spiritual, and that's the same order that we see things happening in the book of Genesis. Now, God teaches in parables, and he has always done that, and he certainly does that with respect to the creative event. In um, Mark chapter 4, I'll read verses 10 through 12, where the Lord affirms that. In verse 10 of Mark chapter 4, it says, And when he was alone, they were about... And when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked him the parable. He's just taught him the parable of the seed that's sown on different soil. And he said unto them, Unto you, not everybody, but unto you is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables. That seeing they may see and not perceive. People can look and see the creation and fail to see God's hand in it even though there's no excuse, seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. They can read Genesis chapter 1 just as easily as you and me, but to them it is a closed book. Uh, they do not understand it. Um, and uh, these truths are hid in Matthew chapter 11. Verses 25 and 27, the Lord says something very similar, but he says it clearer there. In Matthew 11, 25, he says, At that time Jesus answered and said, he's praying, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, 
for so it seemed good in thy sight. So Jesus is saying, you have hid these things, and it is good in your sight to do that. Verse 27, all things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. So we can appreciate that there are things that may be known, that are known by all men, that are revealed to all men, and there are things that are hidden only to be given to whom the Lord will. Only those that, whom the Lord wants to know certain things are given unto him. Now, back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, it talks about there's light there. The light in Genesis verse 3 is not the same as the light in verse 16. In verse 16, it even uses a different word, uh, not in the English, but in the Hebrew. In Genesis 1.3, when God says, let there be light, that's the word light. In Genesis 1.16, when he's talking about um, the creation of the sun, moon, and the stars, he uses the word luminaries. Those are different things. And so you have the scientific community can't wrap their head around that the light in verse 3 is different than the light in verse 16. And they say, how can there be light? There's no sun yet. Well, the answer is, is set before them. They're just are trying to ridicule the Bible. That would be background radiation in verse 3 in terms of the creative event. And I'll talk a little bit about that more in a minute. But with respect to God hiding things, I mean, he says that in Deuteronomy 29, 29, that the secret things belong to God, but those things that are revealed belong to us. So there are many things um, that God has kept secret that he doesn't reveal even to the saints. But what he does reveal, then we can take ownership of that versus the non-believers cannot take ownership um, of those things. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, the Lord says that he hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he hath set eternity, it's translated world here, he hath set eternity in their heart, without which, or so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. Absent the revelation of God, in Ecclesiastes 3.11, he's telling us that. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has set the world in their hearts so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. Unless God has put eternity in your heart, unless he's put his spirit in you, you cannot understand the beginning from the end. You do not understand the big picture of what God um, is doing here. And so, again, God, having told us that he teaches in uh, parables, he also teaches in allegories, he teaches in shadows, he teaches in type, and he teaches in similitudes so that he would teach us these spiritual truths. Now, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 24, he says this very clearly. In Galatians 4, 21 through 24, he says, Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons the one by a bondsmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. That would be Isaac, the child of promise, versus Ishmael. These two people, these two sons are set before us here. They come from two different women. One's a free woman, one was the bondwoman. Hagar was from Egypt. Verse 24, I'm going to read verse 23 again. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants, 
the one from the Mount Sinai, which engendereth the bondage, which is Agar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. He's setting before us a spiritual truth. You have two women, and their lives are an allegory. One represents uh, the covenant of the law. The other one represents the covenant of grace. So how would you like to live your whole life and have it be summed up that you are an allegory? Hagar and Sarah live lives that we're going to read about in some detail in um, the book of Genesis. But God is revealing certain things about their lives so that we would appreciate spiritual truths taught by their two lives. So as we open up Genesis, we'll get into those details, which we can appreciate. But I ask the question, how would you like to have your life summarized as an allegory? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, the Lord says, Ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. You, as a Christian, your life is an epistle that should be read by other Christians, and the world should see and be able to look at you and know and appreciate something about the gospel. It's God's intention that his people go out in the world, and they're represented by the stars in the heaven at night in a dark place. We are lights as we go out in the world. So the Christian life of Sarah and Hagar are set before us in the scripture. Um, the real lives, the, the nitty-gritty about their lives are set before us. You know, in First Peter chapter 3, verse 6, speaking of Sarah, it says, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You know, she set up as this wonderful example about how women ought to um, uh, be subordinate and obedient unto their husbands in certain ways. And so she set before us here... Um, but that's not the way their lives really were. And I think we can appreciate there was a lot of pillow talk between Sarah and Abraham because it was her idea that he go lie with Hagar from whence we have all of the trouble in the Middle East today. That is a recapitula recapitulation of Genesis chapter 3 where the woman took and ate and gave it to her husband and it's created sin, brought, sin entered into the world and there's been nothing but trouble ever since. And then you see that recapitulation where um, Sarah says, hey, God promised us a child. Maybe he needs a little help. And so why don't you, since the son is supposed to come from you, even though we're one flesh and I don't have an appreciation for that yet, godly a woman as I might be, why don't you lie with Hagar? And maybe that's what God has in view here. And there's been nothing but trouble and fighting in the Middle East ever since. So again, we can appreciate when we dig into Genesis what the real Christian walk is like. And so the real Christian walk in Genesis um, helps us to appreciate what our walks are like, what we can expect as we go out in the world and the trials and tribulations that we will suffer. In the book of Genesis, God sets before us seven men in particular, Adam, Abel, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And each of those men represent Christ in different ways. They're all a type of Christ, but they all represent the Christian walk for us. Um, picking it up at Noah, Noah represents regeneration. Noah is, is the individual who went from the old world, the old man, to the new world, to the new man. So Abraham represents regeneration. So depending on where you are in your Christian walk, in terms of how many years you've been a Christian, your level of Christian maturity, you might still be living in that Noah phase where you're a new Christian and you've just been regenerated. 
Or you might uh, be represented by Abraham, who represents the man of faith, and he's typically uh, referred to as the faithful Abraham. He went was called out of Ur of the Chaldees, not knowing where he was going. And so if you're a young Christian, you're not sure where you're going, but you're still following and being obedient unto the Lord by faith. Then you become a little bit more mature, and then you represent, are represented by Isaac, which um, represents sonship. And then you enter into a period of service, which is represented by Jacob. And then finally, Joseph, where you, we see humiliation before exaltation um, is set before us. And you will not know that exaltation until you go to the grave, which you will go in a, in a humiliating sort of way. Not many people die otherwise. You have lost, obviously, when you go to the grave, you've lost all strength of the flesh. And then you're exalted unto glory. So you see, you're going to see a three-dimensional of the Christian walk when you look at Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And it, at different phases of those lives, we're going to see types of Christ in there. So again, getting back to Genesis now here. Genesis 1, big picture uh, is set before us here. Um, we have the historical, the outward, we'll have an inward, uh, the development of man, and we'll see the spiritual truths that are set before us. But simply stated in Genesis chapter 1, with respect to the physical creation, God creates matter, he creates space, he creates time, he creates distance, he creates light, and he creates gravity. And interesting thing about time is, time has a beginning, and it has a beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And there is going to come a period when time is no longer. That's Revelation chapter 10, verse 16. Time will be no longer. That's when this uh, life is over. And the Lord will usher in the new heaven and the new earth. So in the first day, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, we see that there's a light there. It's background radiation, but it's not visible light. If I were to come in here and turn on a black light, you wouldn't see it, but yet it's radiating light at a specific energy. If I were to blow a dog whistle, you know, the dog's ears would prick up, but you couldn't hear it because it's not in a frequency that you can hear. So just as the light that's in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, is at a frequency that cannot be seen by human eyes, but nevertheless, it is still light. It's just a different frequency. And again... That's not the same light that we should see in verse 14, where the Lord sets up luminaries in the heavens. It's not the same. Now, here's an interesting spiritual truth for us. What day does God reveal the sun? It's the fourth day. What day did Jesus reveal himself to his disciples after the resurrection? It's not the third day. Remember that crucifixion calendar I put together for you? It's the fourth day that Jesus is seen by the disciples outside of the um, the tomb. So again, God is teaching spiritual truths in what he has set forth before us here. It's the third day that we see life come in uh, Genesis. It's the third day. Well, that's when the resurrection is. That's on the third day. As I said before, we have this interesting pattern where first we have light, then we have life, and then we have fruit. And this also, this mirrors the inward development of man that starts with his heart. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we know this because God says this, he draws this line, connects these dots for us, that for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So light is shined into the heart of an individual so that they would know and understand and appreciate who Christ is, that the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we see an interesting thing here in Genesis. 
um, in terms of the what happens between verse 1 and verse 2. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, it talks to us about um, the heart of man. In Ephesians 4, 18, it says, having, speaking of man, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, because of the blindness of their heart. Man wasn't always that way, but he was, uh, heart was darkened, and he's alienated from God because of the blindness of his heart. In Romans chapter 3, it says that there is none that understandeth. Man's had his understanding darkened. He does not understand these spiritual truths, and he cannot absent uh, God's intervention. Romans chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, speaks of the fall of man, the alienation of man. In verse 21 of Romans 1, it says, Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Didn't start that way, but it became darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became Fools, And so that is the condition of man today, a darkened heart, and he is a um, fool. Now, back to Genesis chapter 1. Something very interesting happens between verse 1 and verse 2. Now, I want everybody to hear this. There's nothing I'm going to say that changes the fact that God created everything in six literal days. Everywhere in the scriptures that you see the word day next to an ordinal number, it means a 24-hour period of time. And all through Genesis chapter 1, the Lord says, and it was evening and morning, the first day or the second day or the third day. Nothing I'm going to share with you changes, but God has put a spiritual truth in here between verse 1 and verse 2. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Verse 2, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now, that's an interesting statement because in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18, the Lord says, that's not the way I created it. In Isaiah 45, 18, he says, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it, to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. He created it not in vain. Not in vain is the same Hebrew word without form. So Scripture is telling us that he did not create it without form and void. So something happens between verse and 1-2, and we are not told what that is, but we can understand and appreciate that what the Lord is sharing with us is that wheel within a wheel that I spoke of earlier that, that uh, reflects the glory of God um, from the book of Ezekiel, that you've got the Bible folding in on itself here in terms of the Lord teaching us spiritual truths. We see here that it's without form and void, and we see that the Spirit of God moves upon the face of the deep. In Isaiah fifty-seven twenty, we see similar language in that um, it says... Speaking of men's hearts, says the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose water cast up mire and dirt. So imagine this water here is wickedness and of sin and what is hovering over it but the Spirit of God. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 11, 
we read, as an eagle stirreth up her nest, imagine an eagle sitting on her nest and stirring the eggs, as an eagle stirreth up her nest, fluttereth over her young, spreadeth abroad her wings, taketh them, buryeth them on her wings. So the Lord is using language from Deuteronomy that matches language in the Hebrew from Genesis 1. Uh, chapter two, uh, chapter one, verse two. There, in terms of the Holy Spirit is going across over this these deep waters, like the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit is going like an eagle stirreth up her nest, and so God is not going to leave the earth in the condition uh, that we see it here, and He's going to restore um, man. And we're talking in a spiritual allegorical context here. He's going to make everything so that it ends up very good. And so um, in the allegorical sense here, we see that man is sin, that his heart has been darkened, and that God is going to shine the light into his heart and illuminate to man who he is, and we're going to see a restoration of uh, man. You can take the Bible and you can break it up and go from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and break it at Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, as a summary, and you could end the Bible right there. Everything is very good, and that would be the end. That's the whole story. You can close your Bible, and you can go, well, this is going to turn out great for the saints. You can also take it from Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, and close it out in verse 21 of chapter 2, and you'd have a good, that'd be good too. You could just close up the Bible and say, this is all going to work out very well. This is what God has done. This is what he's going to do. You can also take Genesis and go from... Um, chapter 3, verse 22, all the way up to Genesis 50, verse 26, the last verse in the book of Genesis, and stop there. And how does that close out? It closes out with man in a coffin in Egypt with an expectation of a resurrection because it's speaking of Joseph, and Joseph had said, take my bones up into the promised land. But you could close it out there because everything that comes out of man, whether it be good or evil, we find in the book of Genesis, whether it is by the spirit of the flesh or whether it is by the spirit of grace. Everything can be seen here in, in Genesis. Um, you could also fold that book a little bit tighter, and you could uh, end the Bible at the end of verse 5 in Genesis chapter 1. Or you could end it after verse 8, and the gospel is still in there too. Um, so the wonderful patterns are set forth here. In the first three days, what do we see? We see separation. Now, all of those um, days contain God doing something and then separating giving names to things, uh, and setting bounds for those things. He sets bounds on those things. Days four through six, we see the Lord adorning the creation and things bringing forth fruit. And of course, this is God's work throughout the course of our lives and throughout the course of the entire um, world. Um, As far as separating and setting bounds for things, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, um, verse 8, Speaking of people, the Lord says, When the Most High divided the nations, their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. So all of the people that are ever going to live on this planet are limited by the total number of people that God is going to bring to glory. Israel here, not referring to the physical nation of Israel, but the spiritual Israel. When the last saint comes in, then it's over and the Lord will end this and bring in a new heaven and a new earth. So here he's talking about setting the bounds of people and according to the number of the children of Israel. And you can recall many times in the scripture where he refers to his children 
of Israel as like the sands of the seashore, which binds the ocean. God has told the ocean, we read about that in Job 38, the ocean can go this far and no farther. It is bound by the sands of the sea. Um, And so, again, God teaching us spiritual truths that are in here. We should appreciate that God is ever in control and that he is orchestrating all events for his glory to create a people unto himself that are like him. Like kind after like kind. Christians beget Christians. I'm speaking spiritually. He's going to tell Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. When he... uh, At the end of the Gospels, he tells the disciples to go out into the world and make disciples of men. Be fruitful and multiply. It's the same thing that we see in Genesis that we see in the end of the Gospels here. Like kind after like kind. So big picture here in terms of what God is doing. Um, We are going to see that God's going to speak everything into existence. He creates the earth. And then with the earth, he creates man out of the dust of the earth. Out of the man, he takes a rib and he builds a woman. He plants the holy seed in the woman, out of whom comes the Christ, which he then puts back in the man. And this is the way God's building his heavenly kingdom. This is where it starts. We talk about God never changing, and he doesn't in terms of his characteristics and his attributes, but something fundamentally different Now, there is something fundamentally different in the Godhead with respect to Christ taking on the flesh. And this is the process by which he he did it. Um, Because out of this process comes he who is fully God and fully man. Um, And when God is all done with it, he will say, just as he says here in verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. When God is done, when, when we all go to glory, he will say again, it is all very good. So again, my prayer for us and my desire for us is that as we live in Babylon here, when we live, California is just awful, we all know that, but we have to appreciate what God is doing and that there's something far bigger in view here that we do not appreciate as we should, otherwise we wouldn't have heavy hearts about um, the direction we think things are going because they're indeed going to glory. What men mean for evil, God means for good. And that's a spiritual truth that's going to come out in a major way when we get to the life of Joseph. And he sets that so um, very clearly in front of us there that we should be always have that in our mind. All things indeed work together for good to them that love God. So let us not let this world get us down. We see the foolishness that is taking place where they are setting darkness for light, bitter for sweet, you know, evil for good, and we're living in that world, but God has placed his truth in our hearts that we know uh, that all things are working for his glory, his good. He is very much sovereign over all the affairs of men, and everything is very much in control and going exactly the way the Lord wants it to. So with that, I'll say amen. Amen.